And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is author Marston Hefner. Marston came to me through an email that I received from his publicist uh, asking me if I'd have him on the podcast. And at the time, I didn't give much thought to the name. I just saw the name Marston. I saw the title of the book. And I said, okay, well, I'm going on hiatus for the summer. And I will read the book. And once we come back, um, if I feel like we can have a conversation based on you know, what I read in the book, I'll be happy to schedule it. And, you know, the publicist got back to me and said, okay, well, let's get in touch in July or what have you. And so I think at the end of July or early August, I ended up reaching out because honestly, this book is really good. It's called High School Romance. It's sort of a compilation of short, short works, very experimental works, and it's totally my speed. Uh, and one of the things I didn't realize when I was reading it, uh, for some reason, um, it just... It went way over my head. The fact that Marston is Hugh Hefner's son, one of his sons. And I accepted I accepted this interview without even knowing that, without even realizing that. I, I accepted it based on the writing skill alone and the fact that his writing is totally my taste in literature. <laughs> um, and so what happened was last week, a week before uh, actually recording this episode, I gave the book to my girlfriend, Jan. I'm like, do you want to read it? Uh, and it's, it's really good. This is the guy I'm interviewing next week. Would love your thoughts. Cause he's very experimental. And even though I can talk circles around anybody who's writing this way, like I kind of would like to give this person, this individual, everything I've got. So if you have any questions, get back to me. And like within an hour, she, puts the book down and she goes, I think this is Hugh Hafner's son. I'm like, really? Why do you think that? I'm like, read between the lines. Read, read, read between the lines of everything he's, he's writing. And then she flips over to the back and, oh, lo and behold, it's actually in the acknowledgement section or in the bio section or something like that, which I tend to always skip when I'm reading these, which, and I'm glad I did because I probably would have not accepted it. <laughs> I would ever not not out of dis, disdain for Hugh or anything like that. Like I, I think Hugh Hafner is an amazing entrepreneur uh, and has has really opened up the new media world in ways that it probably wouldn't have otherwise. And that's a whole nother episode. I probably would have done it because I wouldn't have felt like, oh, I don't know how to live up to interviewing somebody like this. Like I just 
Um, I would have been nervous. I would have been, um, I wouldn't have, I probably would have not even read his novel the same. And this is probably something that he's familiar with. This is probably the reason his first novel wasn't even published under his real name. Uh, and so, I mean, credit to me for being an airhead, right? <laughs> like, I had no idea. And I'm glad I had no idea because I like this idea of me being won over, not by who somebody's related to, but by their natural ability to get me excited about creativity. And when I read this book, it's called High School Romance. Every piece inspired me to want to create. And that to me is the measurement for good writing. Like if your writing makes me want to write, then you're a good writer. If your film makes me want to be a filmmaker, then you're a great filmmaker. And, and it's also the same reason I've been dabbling in oils and acrylics because I met artists who work in these mediums where I'm just like, I want to do what you do. And Morrison's writing, his writing is exactly on that level where it's just, it inspires me to want to write. And Kitty is saying hello to everybody. So say hello back. And so that's it. That's how I, I came into having this episode with Morrison. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. And I thought it was really, really productive and on par with what this show is all about. So here's my conversation and I'll see you on the other end. Los Angeles. All right, so you're in LA time. Cool. How about you? NYC. Nice. The yeah. Big Apple. Yeah. Do you love it? Or are you trying to get out? Well, I loved it for a long time, but uh, <sighs> after the pandemic, I'm just kind of disenchanted by it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of similar. I think they NYC got hit the hardest, though, actually. I've heard that. Yeah. So where are you thinking about moving? Uh, we're looking at uh, different areas of New England, Western Massachusetts. I'm from Portland, Maine originally, so we're looking there again. Yeah. yeah. Maine is so beautiful in certain parts. Like. Yeah. Geez. It's one of those places where it was hard to live there in the 80s and 90s, but media as an industry has really grown there and so i'm thinking we could realistically go back and mm -hmm. work there so very cool yeah probably about a year or two out from that actually happening <laughs> so in terms of media is this like you want to take this as far as you can like um the podcast is that what you mean by media or 
Well, I work in all kinds of media. So prior to the pandemic, gotcha. I was actually servicing other podcasts, directing the video portions of their shows, mostly entrepreneurial podcasts. And then during the pandemic, I started building this out uh, because one of the one of the things that I really love doing, and we're going to talk about the galleries at some point because your writing reminds me of the gallery art scene in a very, very big and beautiful way. But um, I loved going to art galleries in Chelsea and talking with artists. And then suddenly mm -hmm. after lockdown, we weren't able to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm like, well, I'll have a podcast then. And I'll just bring artists from all mediums on and we'll just talk about what it is they do and how they do it. And now we're in season three. And yeah, when, when you say take it as far as I can, for me, it's just, can I fit it into my life to keep doing it? That's really yes. what I want to do. Just want to keep having these conversations. Um, so you may see a cat occasionally throughout this because my cats like to make cameo appearances. Oh, cats are the best. Yeah. The what kind of cats cat. are they, by the way? They're all street rescues. And so there wow. are some calicos. There's a few um, tuxedos. Yeah. Wow. I, had I have a question. Are, are, I read once that street rescues, that they can't, socialize to humans like cats need to socialize with humans when they're less than three months old or else they're kind of like skittish is that yeah. the case with your cats or are they like love bugs or so that's definitely the case so the ones that were born on the street and sort of what we call alley rescues yeah um, they're definitely a lot more skittish and less trusting they get trusting over the years but not like the ones who are actually born in the apartment so we mm -hmm. rescued a pregnant mother a couple of years ago. And so she had a, a litter that was born here. And it's completely different species. They're completely yeah. trusting. They've never known hardship. <laughs> uh, and it makes a world of difference. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about your excellent book. I loved it. Let's do it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, like I said, uh, I, it reminded me of... Um, just the writing style reminded me of sort of the gallery art scene and the types of artwork that I gravitate towards. Um, and what I mean by that is some of the, some of the most profound art that I've come across comes off to me like a psychological event that's transpiring across the canvas. And I feel like the way you're playing with the page, there's that same sort of vibe and I don't see it a lot in, in, writing, especially today's writing, which is so formulaic. Can you talk a little bit about how you found your voice and this approach? Sure. Um, I think I was just writing. Um, it's like, it's a load of questions. So let me think about yeah, it. Sure. Um, I get this question asked a lot and I think I was I read things that most people don't read. I'm not sure um, what people read, but like I was very into the independent literature scene. Um, okay. Sorry, let me start over. Okay. So, yeah, I think that I, I, I don't know, man. I was just into like, David Foster Wallace and then I, I it's hard to explain like I was just reading the people that I enjoyed um 
and I don't know why my work came out unique. I, I guess I don't think that it's as unique as other people kind of attribute it, it, it to because like I read Gordon Lish, but most people don't read Gordon Lish. I have a feeling that if a lot of people read Gordon Lish, they would see a lot of ties to my work in Gordon Lish um, or Gertrude Stein. Um, there was one that's called Salary Men 4, which was like very stream of consciousness, very psychological kind of experimental playing with reader with the reader. Um, and that style like was very consciously like I was trying to develop my own um, original thing that's never been done before. Um and it was stream of consciousness, but I was trying to do more than that. And like, I came across my friend who is a publisher. His name's Emmanuel Marrero, um, not name dropping, I swear. And he said, like, and then, you know, he and I were doing like very similar things. And I was like, oh, man, like I was operating in a vacuum and I thought that I was the only one doing this. And he was like, wow, you know, we were like kindred spirits. But then I researched more and there's like, you know, five other writers in the independent literature scene doing exactly what I'm doing. And I think I'm like the only guy doing it. Right. And so it was just hard like basically trying to find like something that nobody had done before, like a completely original voice. Like I have yet, I don't think I've really, I've given up on that attempt. Well, yeah. What do, I listened to an interview you'd done for, I guess an NPR podcast uh, that released in August. And there was an interesting thing you were saying about how, you have ADHD and how some sometimes the, the change in writing style in a single piece is designed to keep you focused on that piece. I found that really interesting. Yeah. That's like the repetition and like I think if the book works for you, you'll notice that like every single sentence or every single paragraph will, will bring you in. And I think that that's because of my ADHD. Yeah. I think that that's that's also part of why I'm attracted to writing like this as well because I find it very difficult to stay focused on a single book when I'm reading. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, I I I hear you. That's that's interesting. Is it because you're like reading stuff that like work is requiring you to read, or is it just like genuinely like any book? Because I feel like there's got to be like special books out there that's just like, oh, I could read this over yeah. and over again if I, if I could or something. I have I have a I have trouble staying focused on sort of what I call train station paperbacks, just basically yeah. mainstream. I can get yeah. through any Bukowski like that, right? Um, but I, and I think there's a has something to do with just a natural aspect to you know the language and the approach in language and does it feel like somebody real versus something that's really like heavily edited through a mass media conglomerate like that's not going to read natural to me you know yeah is it kind of like you just don't want to be sold you want to 
stop being sold or like told like a story that's not real. Yeah, you know what? That's an interesting way to put it because I was just thinking this morning about um, I have an allergy to consumerism and consumeristic tactics. Yeah. <laughs> so like if I'm in a store and I'm in like the queue and they've got all that stuff they're trying to sell as we're trying to get our way to the register, I almost have like this sickening reaction to it. And I wonder if that's related. Yeah, because Bukowski's like the opposite of that. Like he's just like, I'm just going to give it to you. I feel like maybe like my book as well, you know, like the showing, not telling, like, I just kind of don't even think about that. I just like tell you everything that's happening in the book in a very like, I'm, I'm trying in, in some of the pieces, I'm trying to not have a wall between you and me, the reader, by like telling a story. I'm just straight up saying like, this is how I feel, or this is what's happening. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's totally yeah. what it feels like. Um, can you can you talk about how you found writing as your medium? I'm always interested in how do people find their path to dedicate. I mean, this is a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of neurons that people dedicate to putting down words. Why do you do it, and how did you find your way to it? Um. I wanted to be a psychologist or I wanted to be a sociologist or I wanted to be a writer. And I read, um, it's embarrassing, but I read on the road and dude, as an undergraduate under, like there's nothing like on the road as an undergraduate at college. And so that was it. Like I just became obsessed. Did you write a, did you write a lot when you were younger? No, I read I loved books when I was younger, but I had ADD, so it was kind of like tough to read the school curriculum stuff until I got um, diagnosed and medicated. Yeah, I feel that. Um, right? Like the I, school curriculum just ruins reading, I feel like. I agree. And it's actually one of the reasons I'm glad. I'm like really happy I didn't read The Great Gatsby until I was an adult and had the choice to read it on my own because I don't feel like I'd feel the same way about it had I been forced to read it. Absolutely. Totally uh, agree. Did you ever see the traveling exhibit of the scroll for On the Road? No, but I thought that they were going to come out with that on... I think that they published it. Yeah, like, they did. Yeah, but I've never seen the actual scroll. No. Was yeah, it a New typewriter or what was it? Yeah, so the New York Public Library had it and and... We went in and it's just like this roll of paper that he fed through a typewriter and he had it going from one roll to the other and he just kind of wrote it all in one fell swoop. Stream of how consciousness. Did, how did he, did he like tape the piece, the piece of paper together? How did he get one? He bought some sort of special roll. Now this goes into sort of out, out of my expertise because it had something yeah. to do with the way um, new media worked in the 60s. Mm -hmm. where he could go to like a company, like a newspaper company or something. And they had, I guess, special roles that he could buy. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So. Are you a yeah. Kerouac fan? Not really. I, I'm, oh. I'm a fan though of, of that, that era and the, the inventiveness of it. I, I think that we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now if it wasn't for be people who were sort of breaking the rules. Yeah. 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 
So that's so Bukowski's more your or your jam for that era. Bukowski, I relate to a lot more because yeah. uh, the the Kerouacs and a lot of those New York side writers were very much rooted in academia and and Columbia University scene, which is not accessible to me at all. So, well, they dropped out though, right? Yeah, like, they did. At least, yeah. But I don't know, there's something about a guy who hops from job to job, unable to find his place, and then somehow, some way, he ends up writing these really great novels and poetry. And yeah, I love that. It's romantic. Same, same. He never stopped doing it either. I'm, I'm impressed by. Yeah, he he did it till he died, and 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 one of the the really weird things is seeing him there's a picture of him in his study late in life and he's writing on a Macintosh. <laughs> it's super weird photo. He's wow, got a Mac. That is weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wow, he lived long. He was well into the nineties. Yeah. So. I'm interested in, your studies because to, to a certain extent you did talk a little bit about uh, how writing is taught. And this is something that I definitely want to expand on in this episode. Sure. Um, can you start with your experience in college, your experience with how writing was taught and how it might've not have worked for you and what you think could be done differently? I know I give you these loaded questions, but really I just want you yeah. to talk about the subject. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's like it's just it's just awful. I don't know, man. I I think like public schools really mess people up, especially just not even especially. Like I just had terrible teachers and um I'm trying to think of like how do they mess people up? I'm not really I'm not entirely sure. I just know that nobody really enjoys school and learning is like, you know, as an adult, if you've like, I feel like we've kind of figured out that learning is just like incredible and it's addicting. And it's like, once you figure out what you want to learn, it's like you, you never really stop enjoying it. Like um, that's reading for me. Sometimes I get tired of it, but um and I, I don't know what happens. I mean, what do you think happens? It's just like teachers, teachers who don't l love learning. I'm not, I don't even know. I mean, maybe you can help me out with this. Sure. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot more students who think outside the box than the curriculum designers would like to admit. And I, I can tell you from my perspective that I went back to school at the age of 35, I'm 41 now, to sort of undo the damage of the public education system that I came up in. Because when I came to New York, I was very ill-prepared for a lot of things that most people are prepared to do, like budget for their projects, or even, I couldn't even calculate tip. I was just so bad at mathematics. Mm. Uh, and when I went back to school, I chose a, a sort of night school where I could design my own independent studies. 
I could hire out uh, tutors for subjects that I was especially horrified for. So with my, my basic college mathematics credits, I'm like, I am, my goal is to get a, at least a B. I ended up with an A minus because mm-hmm. I ended up hiring four tutors just to kind of what I call undo that damage. That's so <laughs> relatable, dude, because like my, I come from a very wealthy family and the fact that like I went through so many tutors, like it was very clear that I had like learning problems. And you know, it's like when you have learning, when you have a hard time learning, they tell you you're slow or something of that sort. You get the gist is like, I'm not as smart. That's the way you kind of frame it as a kid. Like I'm not as smart as Eric or Lauren. And so I had all these tutors and like, I just went through them because my mom didn't really know how to, it felt like a foreign concept, the idea that learning could be really enjoyable. And so we went through all these tutors until we found like the perfect math tutor that I just stuck with. And I'm still friends with her to this day because she was like more than a math tutor. She was like talking to me about my life and she was talking to me about everything under the sun. And yeah, it's so important to have that right, that fit. Yeah. 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 No, 100%. Like one of my math tutors recognized that I was really looking to break away from film because I've been in film for a long time and I wanted to study purely writing and literature. And so he's like, well, we could root what's going on in the language of math with the philosophies of the essays of Francis Bacon. And so his entire tutoring approach for math was rooted in the essays of Francis Bacon, which really blew my mind. And this is a guy who understands. I mean, this is what I call a real teacher versus not, you know, like not to insult teachers, but there are a lot of fake teachers out there who would not go this extra mile. Um, And it changed things. I came out with an A minus in that subject. I came out in what is the biggest Latin honor summa cum laude? Like, my GPA, had they done Latin honors at the school, would have been in yeah. the highest Latin honors, which, oh. forget, that would have never happened in high school or if I had yes. gone to college right out of high school. Like, right. just... <laughs> yeah. I, was I completely feel there. that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I relate to that, and I'm glad that you had that experience. Yeah, I, uh, I, I credit the... my sort of approach to lifelong learning to actually a vocational school I attended. So I went to a Portland high school in Portland, Maine for most of my basic classes, which were all special ed classes. But in the mornings I was able to commute to a vocational school where they would teach you graphic arts, graphic design, video technology. And it was really there that I was able to do a lot of hands-on stuff. And so it sort of, I guess it took root in a way where I realized, well, if I can actually do it, I'm more likely to be able to learn it rather than just reading about it. Or, you know, you remember those old high school classes where there's basically reading classes, not literature classes. And so you're not really talking about (laughs) literature. You're just sitting there reading like, I don't know, some YA novel that doesn't really even matter. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's funny. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on education. That's why I thought that we could bring that up. Yeah. Um, I, I think what I noticed the most about our education system is that 
it's like the IQ test where it's like Eskimos score really low on IQ tests. Like there are certain cultures that's, that just are atrocious at the IQ test. And it's like, but they're really good at what that culture emphasizes. So like they can move with their hands better. You know, it's just an example. And it's like our school system emphasizes this certain intelligence where you can sit down and and listen for eight hours a day. And if you aren't good at doing that specific thing, then you're like a fucking idiot. Right. And like for ADD, I think for us, it's like we were probably hunter gatherers or fishermen. We were doing something with our hands where like the Amish don't even have ADD. At least they claim not to, because if somebody doesn't want to sit down and like learn, they go, okay, they give them a fishing pole or they give them a, a rifle. They're like, okay, go out there and, you know, and it's just not, not an issue. And it's like, yeah, that makes so much sense to me because when I wasn't, like my joy was playing basketball, recess. Oh my gosh, like recess was my escape because I got to run, I got to do whatever. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, for me, it's just about kind of like intelligence is completely messed up. Um, the definition of intelligence is completely messed up, like in our school system. And that's why it's like, like my, my wife is like, we don't have to send our kids to a private school. I'm like, I agree, we don't, but I want the option to, like financially, I want that option because for me, it saved my life. Like, save my passion, save my ability to love learning, save my like emotions. But like, um, she's like, but I did it and it, I was fine. And I was like, she, she kind of like, she was dyslexic and she struggled. Like it's not easy to be dyslexic in a public school system, at least in the nineties. And like she had, and so She's like, yeah, you're right. Like my school sucked, you know? Yeah. I totally feel that because we have a kid on the way and we've been for the first time in my life and I never thought I'd be saying this, but I'm looking at school districts and I'm looking at, is yeah. there something, if this child ends up being anything like me, it's going to need a lot of support and, um, or they're going to need a lot of support. And I'm horrified by just the ratings of all the places that we've been looking at and, like you said, I want the option to be able to send this person to a private academy if that is what is absolutely necessary for them. Um, mm. And it's, it's, I never plan to have kids. So it's, it's really interesting that you brought that up because that's something I've been thinking about for the past three months. Mm. Similar. Yeah. But I have noticed something interesting. So I've heard on another podcast, I don't know if it was, something I was listening to or if it was another guest of mine because they all tend to bleed together. But somebody had said something like school was designed so that people would be trained to sit down and work all day in offices yeah. or whatever. And I don't know how true that is, but it does. I have noticed, though, that like the people who seem to do well in their initial education system tend to get jobs pretty quickly in yeah. offices and firms or what have you. Whereas a lot of people who 
are sort of outside the box in the way they do things end up becoming entrepreneurs or having platforms and st- or yeah. artists. And I find that an interesting, obviously it's going to have its exceptions, but I see that a lot. There are two things that interest me about that. First of all, like entrepreneurs, please tell me about this. Cause I, I find that fascinating that like the kids who can't focus in school become like go off and do their own thing and start their own business. The, the second thing that interests me is like, it makes so much sense to me that that conspiracy theory, because like, I remember as a kid, like being like, why the fuck is school eight hours a day? Like, it's insane that like a little child is like, like some of the most rigorous parts of my life, you know, was like going through like fifth grade school system just dreading it i mean it kind of makes sense to me yeah well it's it's something that i'm stuck with a lot and i think it's a lot of what i write personally is going to be rooted in exploring that i mean there's the obvious thing right a lot of parents just like being able to send their kids to a place so that they can go to work or do stuff yeah (laughs) it's essentially a babysitting gig for a lot of teachers it's actually Um, true yeah but um yeah, this is the the one thing I'm troubled by, <laughs> all, all the time. Uh, I had a thought on it, but it's completely slipped my mind. Oh yes, so I'm liking it to uh, the entrepreneurial aspects of it. I think a lot of them end up doing really well because they're not stuck in this sort of box, like like Branson, for example. Uh, he, yeah. Oh, I mean, a record producer turned to retail he went from owning a very small chain of retail stores to owning a space flight company like had he been better in school i don't think he would have thought to even try doing what he's done that's true i i agree with that um i guess i'm a little biased because at the end i did well in school and i want to be like no that's not true but um yeah i so i can i can see either i can see either or you know um yeah well like i said i think there are exceptions and there's things that i noticed and i also i've also been thinking about it in terms of music too like what kind of music stands out and the things that sort of become legendary for example like the jimmy page solos or what have you Mm. Uh, they tend to break formula, whereas like, so for yeah. example, a lot of guitarists are taught to root their solos in pentatonic scale, whereas Jimmy Page might do that. But if the song is an F, he's going to add F notes where they don't belong in the solos. And suddenly the solos stand out more than they would otherwise. And I think so that's sort of a musical version of that. Yeah. Breaking, breaking away from formula. Yeah. I think that's interesting. It's like, when is breaking a formula like good? And something that kind of interests me is like, are these people just so good at what they do that like they see another level of like the script that like people don't, wouldn't even think of as an option. And that's why we're so amazed. It's like, we're going, okay, this is the solo and we can see this because he's built this pattern here. And then he does like option B, which is like only a true master could really come up with. Or is it the other way around where it's like, 
this guy kind of started wanting to break form, you know, and um, I don't know, man, for me personally, just to like break away from all, both of those options. Like, I think that if you do something and really enjoy it and you're relaxed and you're into like in tune, like whatever that means, I think that that's where like you can see a lot more options of, are available to you. But if you're like kind of uptight and you're just like rote, like routine, um, focusing on like A, B, A, B or whatever, I don't know how to play music, but then there's not going to be as much creativity or love involved in the process. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do you know that? that? Like did, page enjoy like he must have just loved the fuck out of it right that's my guess i mean he had to yeah uh, I, I was recently watching a video about the solo to queen's bohemian rhapsody yeah and the, the guy was talking about how the guitarist in queen was actually an astrophysicist who was delayed yeah. in getting his phd because of the success of the band and so he didn't design any of his solos around the scales, um, which, again, yeah. is breaking away from formula. He, what he would do is he'd sit in the studio, and this is obviously just hearsay, but I love the idea, so I'm going to convey it. He would sit I'm in interested. The studio, yeah, he would sit in the studio listening to Queen record, and he would mm -hmm. hum a melody where the solo would go. So the, his solos are designed after what he could actually sing versus what the scale dictates he should be doing. So when you, if you were to hum along with his solos, you could actually realistically take a breath in between things because they're meant to be sung. I mean, no other guitarist I know of designs a solo based around what they can sing. No. That's wild. Um, also, he's cross-disciplinary too. Yeah. Like he, I've noticed a lot of really successful people move from one job to another and they just kill it. That's interesting. You know, those are the people I find most interesting. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, I learned recently that Bill Burr, the comedian also flies helicopters. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. How did he get to doing that? And uh, I think he probably just enjoys flying helicopters, right? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, or knowing him, he probably did it as uh, a mechanism to have an option. He's, he's a very uh, negative person when it comes to society and apocalyptic events and stuff. Yeah, that that's special. His last two specials have been like the best that I've ever heard. So I'm a big fan of him. Yeah, me too. I... Uh... I brought him I brought him up on my notes. Oh yes, I did bring him up on my notes for your podcast because you were talking about a couple of things that reminded me of his routines. One was you're the only person to explain why zombies why the zombie genre is so big. I never got it. I never understood it. But you were talking about how um yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the perfect representation of the unconscious person or something like that. Yeah, um, and that's the book too, in a way, like the book that I wrote. It's like, oh man, the zombies are going to hate this one. 
<laughs> yeah. You're going to come for me. I hadn't thought of it that way, but now I'm more interested in that genre. And I think that's that says a lot. Bro, those are the good ones, too. Like, the George A. Romero ones, like, the classics, they leave you more room for thinking about that stuff because the newer ones, they're just like, eat your brains and run, 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 get out. But the older ones, they put you in a room in a mall and all the zombies are really slow. So there's like a chance for this kind of conversation to happen within the movie. And I don't know. It's interesting. I like that stuff. Yeah. I'm liking it a lot more now. Yeah. Uh, one of the, okay. So one of the reasons I wrote Bill Burr down and I'm realizing this now is um, not just the zombie thing, because he has a lot of bits about the zombie apocalypse, Shoot. Um, which I'm thinking now definitely links back to him learning how to do a helicopter to fly a helicopter um but you talked about in another conversation about how hardness and this is your words hardness isn't a happy place to be yeah um, and sort of how the stereotype for what is a man is that they're hard and there's no room for softness um can you elaborate on that and sort of your sure. experience with the sort of male archetypes and where you feel you fit. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I was very hard at some point. Like, I think like, especially with mental illness, like if you notice, like maybe throughout whoever's listening to this life, but for me, like, the less happy I was and the more like sick I was like without going, not going to therapy and not like talking about my feelings, not like um, going off my medication. Like I, I became more of an asshole. Right. And I became more masculine and I became like really angry, you know, and violent. Um, Oh man, and this this is like the perfect way to describe it. So I was I I play basketball every day, every five days a week, and I have my basketball in my hand and I'm walking down the street and I lift up my heels so I'm standing on my tippy toes as I jog across the street and I think to myself oh that felt nice I felt light as a feather I remember thinking in my head I really liked the way that felt just tippy toeing across and this car zooms by and goes twinkle toes and then I'm like huh so I'm a little upset I'm a little deflated, but at the same time, I'm like, what a specific like thing to think of like that quickly, right? Like these guys, twinkle toes, it's just a very specific word as a writer. I'm like, that's bizarre. Why does he even know what twinkle toes means? And then I'm thinking he uses twinkle toes. He's using my masculinity against me because if I'm, if I'm the type of fellow who's like, I got to be hard and I got to be a man and I can fucking beat up anybody. And then I hear someone go twinkle toes. I'm like, oh, fuck, he got me. 
But if I can look at that and go, okay, so this is someone who is upset about their masculinity and he wants to be make me upset about my masculinity. It's like, well, it's just better to be everything. Like, I don't want to be a man. I don't want to be a woman. I don't want to feel like I have to be masculine or feminine. Like, I want to be fucking water. Because if I'm water, if I'm nothing, then I can look at everything and kind of laugh. And it was like, then it became funny. Like, oh, this is a guy who thinks he's going to get me because he thinks I'm like a hard motherfucker. I'm like, I do jujitsu on Sundays. I can like defend myself if I want to, but I don't even have to live in the world that you, this game that he wants to play. Yeah. I, yeah, the first thing I thought of when you said that was this guy has some soul searching to do. This is more of something he's going through. Yeah. Um, and I obviously I would hope that he finds some way to not be like that. But if he under even understood for a second like what any martial arts artists go through, he'd be very surprised about how some some things aren't as masculine as they seem to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly perfectly said. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, Tyson, it reminds you of Tyson, who said, uh, there are enough tough guys in fighting. We need smarter. We need smart fighters now. We need intelligent fighters. And just kind of the notion that masculinity just like dominates these like masculine arts or, or violent arts or war or anything. I think you're right. It's like the masters aren't all the toughest guys in the room, you know. It reminds me of this, this, I mean, you're bringing back everything I'm haunted by from middle school. Like, <laughs> climb that rope, Noah Cross. Like, no, why do I have to climb that rope? What, what's up there? Except dust. But uh, <laughs> I remember like I was at this, you know, this frenemies house in my town. We just had frenemies. Like sometimes you were friends, sometimes you weren't. Uh, and yeah. in this moment, we, I guess we were friends and I had figured out how to sing this tonic song. If you could only see mm. in, in the, and I don't know if you know that song from the nineties, but I was a teenager when it came out. And so I was always mystified by the way he sang, if you could only see. And for one brief moment, I landed the, the note C, mm. uh, and I'd never been able to do it again, but I remember just being shot down, like, you know, being labeled like an Ethel Merman type thing by somebody yeah. who just would never even try to practice singing. And uh, it's just like, oh, come on, man. And, and you took I, the risk and you, and the thing is you nailed it. Like you fucking yeah. know you nailed it. And it's like, right, right when you're vulnerable and you're at your peak and someone just like, okay, Ethel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and then, of course, that affects, especially young people, that affects them, right? So I didn't actually pursue singing lessons or anything like that, though I probably would have loved to. That's an interesting story and relatable. And, you know, I hope that that you can practice singing sometimes, you know, in the shower or wherever. Yeah. When I'm alone. Yeah. Uh, Can we talk about mentorship? 
Love it. Talk about mentorship. I think it's really important. And you credit, in in your acknowledgments of your book, you credit your therapist for helping you realize that your your deviation from what is from the normalities of writing is actually your strength. And I was, I was wondering if you talk about sort of finding that realization and what it is that they did for you specifically. Yeah. I think a lot of my life I was kind of looking for a father figure because my father wasn't like really there for me. My guess is like mentorship is maybe a little bit like that for a lot of like young males. It's like dad didn't like really pat me on the back as much as he should have. Um, And so like throughout my 20s and early 30s, I was like looking for love um, and guidance. And I think I've kind of like solved that riddle in a way where um, it's not so explicit. Um, But with with my therapist, geez, they've been with me through everything. Um, and there's someone that I can talk to about anything. Um, and so I just, I think more than anything, that's kind of what's this book wouldn't be possible. My excellence at at what I do and okay. If like, let me feel good about myself, uh, listeners, please. You know, I hope that you can do the same for yourself. Um, you know, uh, having someone to talk to about anything. I, I remember I had a secret when I was 11 to 16 years old. And the shame that it brought me was, it was really hard. My life sucked, man. I mean, it, it didn't suck. Obviously, I had a lot of amazing times, but I think a lot of people hold on to things and they don't feel like they can tell anything. And, and women too. I think like women get taken advantage of sexually, for example, and they can't talk about it. And so my therapists are just like, the reason why I acknowledge them is one, they're like geniuses, but two, they made me feel like safe to, to talk to them. Um, yeah. So, and they were legally bound to never mention it. <laughs> that's nice. Okay. Yeah, that's always good. Yeah. How, how does how did that translate though into your realizing though like, or does it even? It must. It translates to you accepting your your writing as a sort of outside the box way approach. I mean, I know it's not really outside the box for the type of literature you read, but for most people. Uh, it's new. It will be new. Yeah, I think it does. It does. Well, writing is always a primal, it's always a joy. And, and what, what you're comfortable to write about. I mean, my book talks about a lot of taboo topics that people wouldn't feel comfortable talking about. And I think that talking to my therapists about things that are just about love and self-acceptance. I said, Hmm, I'd like to have that in the world as well, not just in the therapy room. And so I extend that within my art and I fictionalize it because a lot of it is not like, um, 
a lot of it is not are not my feelings but there's just a world where basically i was struggling and i wanted an 18 year old marston to struggle less and i wrote this book in order to like i'm just imagining you know like a college student who doesn't really have anybody to go to and they read, they listen to this podcast, you know, or, or something like that. And then they pick up the book and they, they feel less alone. It was kind of the goal. And my therapist made me feel less alone. That's a great answer. I feel like that's also another measurement for like, I did an introduction before we connected and I was telling them that the measurement for, what I consider to be great writing is whether it inspires me to write. And I feel like that's another great measurement is, does it make you feel alone or does it make you feel less alone? Yeah. Um, and I, I definitely feel like your writing makes me feel less alone. Wow. Thanks man. Yeah. And I genuinely mean it. <laughs> um, trying to find this piece I wanted to talk about. Uh, I hope that, you know, I don't know. I just appreciate, I appreciate hearing that. And I think you're, you're a fucking great dude. And I think you're going to just whatever you do in your life. I feel like you're going to do great. So thank you. Yeah. I feel like I, you're I just, already probably, you're already doing it, but keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, the end game is how can I keep doing it? Yeah, that's always the hard part. Um, I've completely lost. I'm not really good at electronic bookmarking, <laughs> but you had a really great piece about uh, whacking off to somebody's Pulitzer Prize winning. Novel. Uh, yeah, Sherman Alexis. Sherman yeah. Alexis. I love that piece. Yeah, it's like Being how alone. can you get close to to a Pulitzer? <laughs> Um, can you talk about that? Talk about yeah, yeah. Uh, the seeds for that? Sure. I was in Tokyo. I was living in Tokyo, um, teaching English. Talk about like dead end, like jobs that nobody wants. Like teaching English in Tokyo. Oh my God, that work culture is rough. Um, and I was feeling pretty alone. Um, I don't really know how it came about, you know, I just felt like I wanted, so it's like, there's, there's a difference between writing it. Like when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking right now that I'm looking back on it, I could be like, oh, okay. You know, my father, uh, was never really a father and I really wanted to be close to him. Like let me understand the way you do the things you do. Cause you're, he's like actually an objectively a genius for the readers who don't know, right. Listeners who don't know this. My father is Hugh Hefner. Um, and then Sherman Alexi, like I see much of the same Sherman Alexi. He's a genius who, you know, we're talking about academia. We read him in academia and he was like always better than like, he was the guy in undergraduate classes where we were like that dude is different than the other stuff we're reading um and so talking about mentorship 
I wanted to know what Sherman Alexi knew. And so I masturbate on the cover of Sherman Alexi as a desire to be as close to Sherman Alexi as I possibly can. And obviously it's like a totally futile effort. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good explanation. It is futile effort. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's what we do as readers, like who are writers. It's like we comb through these books that we love so much in order to learn something from them. Like, if, you know, yeah. And I, w I would wonder too, like Sherman Alexi, like what they think of their work. Mm. They probably don't think as much of it as we think, you know? Yeah. Totally. Everybody has insecurity about their work. Totally. That's why I was thinking like Michael Jordan can't like see Michael Jordan ever. Yeah. Like he's just, yeah. But that's yeah. kind of why I like to look into the mirror and go like, I'm awesome. Like, like in the morning or at night, I just look in the mirror and go, I'm awesome. And it kind of helps you get a little bit closer to like, feeling about yourself the way other people feel about you yeah i i've heard that like affirmations can make a really big difference in yeah everybody's day-to-day -day. just affirmations every morning yeah yeah scientifically it helps i know it's kind of like pop now but like you know cognitive behavioral therapy is like all about like affirmations yeah it makes sense to me um, I mean, we're bombarded every day with just negative feedback, negativity in some form. I, a lot of people, their lives just come down to what's the next move I got to make to survive. Mm -hmm. And they forget that they're fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I, I truly did really like your book. Um, and I, I, you didn't hear the intro, but one of the things I talked about was um, I had just received an invitation to interview you, I guess, through your PR person. Yeah. Uh, at, at the beginning of the summer, but I was going on hiatus and I'm like, and I just looked at the name. I'm like, oh, Marston. All right. Yeah, well, you will probably do it. We'll probably do it. And I'll read the book. And then once I read the book, we'll schedule it and i literally didn't know who your father was till last week when i had jan do a background so i what i was explaining in the intro was i accepted you based on your writing skill alone wow uh, and, and you were excited about it i'm really excited about it wow and then jan's like i think this is hugh hefner's son and i'm like really yeah she's like didn't you read the acknowledgments or anything like that and i'm like i don't i usually skip that stuff i just care about the writing and so I'm like, I'll do the background on this. And so I'm like looking into this. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to listen to other podcasts and uh, really get to know this person because you, you have a lot of you have a lot of subtext that I didn't even initially pick up on. Um, yeah, a like lot of lore. That, a lot of a lot of that that one line where you're like, as soon as I win the race, they'll call me Hugh. Like, yes. and, and I'm done, Delilo. Yeah. Uh, I'm like that has a lot more meaning with this context than I had when I first read it over the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, it just, 
it blew my mind. And I love that I was ignorant for it through the whole summer. I'm just like, yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get it. I'm, just, I'm telling your agent this. I'm like, we'll get to it. And then eventually we scheduled it. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I loved your writing because, um, as you said, it makes a person feel less alone. I don't read enough writing like the writing I, you know, I'm into. And so I think I've had one other person on the podcast who I feel like writes the way you write. Uh, mm. It's a woman named Loie from season one. Uh, mm. And uh, not, not many are doing it. No. Uh, I feel like you're truly having fun with it. Thanks, man. I am. And, you know, like throughout my life, it's hard maybe to understand from uh, if you're not me, but like, it's impossible to know who, unless somebody explicitly says like, I didn't know who your dad was. There's no way for me to know if they're judging me based off of like, um, with that knowledge or without knowing that. And so it means like a lot to know that you really dug the writing without, without, with just knowing that I'm Marston. That's cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Like I get a lot of emails from people wanting to be on, I'll see first names. I usually don't look at them. I don't look at their website or at their bio. They'll send me a PDF. Some of them will send me a hard copy and I'll just read the work. And based on the work, I'll schedule it or I won't, or I'll just be like, well, I'm really busy. <laughs> um, right. And honestly, like it, it is genuinely about the work. I, I mean, I went through an MFA program at Sarah Lawrence where nobody's writing what you're writing. Did you know Harris Lottie? No. No. Okay. No. He similar thing. Oh yeah. Uh, he went lot, to, anyways. Yeah. I was just, I, I'm hard pressed to find people who, who write the literature that I'm into. And so yeah. I hope that when you have another book coming out at some point that you'll come back on and, or even if you don't I would be so book, cool, man. Honestly, know? this has been like the best podcast I've done, the best interview I've done. And so hell yeah, oh, I'm thanks. back. I'm there. Yeah. I go for chill factor. Like let's just talk about art, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, whether you have a book or not, you're welcome back anytime. Cool, man. Well, thank you. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll cobble all this together and then I'll email your agent to let him know when it's scheduled to release probably sometime in October. Awesome. Well, I hope you have a good day and you know, really great pleasure meeting you. Likewise. Thanks Marston. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Marston Hefner, author of high school romance, a wonderful compilation of short stories, creative nonfiction essays, poetry in verse form i mean we're talking experimental literature in its finest form uh please check it out i'll put a link to amazon in the description as well as a link to marston's website again if you're into creative writing if you're into just experimental art this is an author to check out to follow uh this isn't his first book he has another novel it's a zombie apocalypse novel that he wrote under a different name i'll put that in the link in the description as well and Follow his uh, author page on Amazon because he's got a lot of great work, and I'm pretty sure, based on this conversation, he must have a lot of great work in store for us. And uh, if you follow his page, you'll get updated on any new books that come out after this. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you on the next episode.
Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.